Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Louis Vincent Gov. Now, I have uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. Louis is based out of Hong Kong and um, Vancouver Island, but he's from France. He runs a firm that's based in Hong Kong and Beijing, producing research and managing money for high net worth institutional clients. Now, this conversation really was focused on the redrawing of the geopolitical landscape in relation to the energy trade. We look at the hot war that's broken out in Europe and how this is going to um, realign a handful of allied nations into new alliances. And if you look at the top 10 energy producing countries in the world, about 70% of them, you could speculate, are going to be more inclined to align with the East than as they historically have with the West and how this changes the game. And so this obviously on the back of U.S. sanctions on Russia, mainly including the confiscation of $600 billion of U.S. dollar reserves, which historically was an asset that anybody on the planet could look to as the safest asset in the world. And so that's why central banks all over, all over the globe hold their reserves in U.S. dollars because it's been perceived as safe. Now, the U.S. broke that perception. The issue there, you could say it was a warranted decision. I'm not arguing that. But this, the message this sends to the whole world is that, you know, the net asset value of the U.S. dollar is largely tied to the predictable, safe and just governance of this country and this currency. And if that is no longer predictable and or safe for foreign nations, then, you know, where do they look elsewhere? And they're going to have to look elsewhere. And many countries already are. So this is fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Uh, similar here in Canada, we had a new precedent set within the last year where our leadership confiscated the financial assets of hundreds of Canadian citizens because they donated to a cause that our leader didn't support. And again, not wondering about your politics or debating that, you know, whether or not that convoy was right or wrong, the action taken by the administration was absolutely unprecedented and created overnight at the discretion of the leader. And, and that's, that's a new event when you look at industries like Vancouver, Canada's uh, real estate market, which similar to US dollar, Vancouver's real estate market is largely a safe haven asset class for China, right? If you make a bit of money in China, one of the first things wealthy uh, Chinese do is park some capital in Vancouver's real estate market, not necessarily for the price appreciation, but because they acknowledge they live in an authoritarian governed country and things can change quickly and change for the worse. And so having a plan B in a country that is stable, predictable, and just like Canada is a smart play. The same reason I own gold, right? You look for those safe havens. And so this does change the interpretation of what a safe haven asset is and where they can be found. And this redraws the geopolitical landscape, dramatically speaking. So fascinating conversation with Louis. I really enjoyed this. I kept them longer than I promised I could have kept them for three hours. Uh, I learned a ton. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. As always, I'd love to have you subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I absolutely love writing it. And there's a link in the podcast description where you can find uh, that sign up. So here is Louis Goff. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Louis Gov. Louis, thanks so much for making the time and coming on the show today. Well, amongst neighbors, got to help each other out. Yes, that's right. I, I didn't realize how close, actually. Um, so that's been fun. Uh, 
for anyone who's not familiar with you, Louis, could we start with just like a quick 30 second overview of, of who you are and how you spend your time? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Louis Gov. I grew up in France. Um, I moved to uh, Asia in the mid 90s and spent most of my career there uh, working in, in financial markets, first for a French investment bank and then for a business that I started with my father, Charles, and my friend, Anatole Kaletsky. Uh, the business is called GAFCAL. Uh, it's headquartered in Hong Kong uh, with an office in, uh, in Beijing. Uh, and uh, we really have two main business lines. We um, write and publish research for institutional investors around the world. Um, and we also uh, manage money uh, also for institutional investors, mostly in Asia, with a very solid bias towards uh, China and uh, especially Chinese things Uh So the, the past 25 years or so of my life have been uh, really about, you know, digging, going further and further down the wormhole of, uh, of China in every aspect, Chinese markets, Chinese economy, Chinese politics. Um, it's been a fascinating period, of course, because so much has happened in that in that small time frame. Um, mm. A few years back, the reason I say amongst neighbors, we got to help each other out. Um, a few years back, uh, my wife and I decided to uh, to move back to the Western world and um, and decided to settle in British Columbia, uh, initially in Whistler, um, because we had a house there, uh, and then on Vancouver Island, uh, where, where we're now based. Um, but uh, I still drive through Squamish on my way up to Whistler all the time. So uh, next time, maybe if I can stop over for a beer. Bring, bring the bike. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. that's okay. another option. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, for a shred. Um, Okay, very cool. So, so following that line of thought, then let's talk about China a little bit in the context of this uh, this war in Europe. I look at this as who you know who's going to be the winners and who's going to be the losers, and it seems to me that China is in a position to win big in this scenario. And so, you know, is that suspicion correct? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Um, I agree with you, uh, but I'd like to rewind the clock uh, just a little bit. I think for, um, you know, today in the past uh, few months, well, since this Ukraine invasion, we've witnessed two things, right? We've witnessed the, the weaponization of the Western financial systems against Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we captured all the assets of the Russian oligarchs. We captured the assets of the Russian central banks. Um, and facing this weaponization of the financial systems, Russia decided to weaponize energy. Um, but before all of this happened, uh, if you're China, there was a previous weaponization. Um, and that first weaponization occurred in 2018, and that was the weaponization of the semiconductor markets. In 2018, the US told the world, if anybody sells semiconductor to Huawei, then they can't sell to the US anymore. Uh, and they can't, and they can no longer use U.S. patents, and this caused, in essence, Huawei to implode. Uh, Huawei, which at the time was really China's industrial jewel, uh, you know, China, China's pride and joy. Yeah. Imagine, imagine if ten years ago the U.S. had turned around and said nobody's allowed to sell semiconductors to BlackBerry, uh, and BlackBerry had imploded. You know, Canadians, Canadians would be pretty upset. So. When this occurred in 2018, 
I think there was a realization amongst the Chinese leadership that the US no longer is a commercial partner, it's no longer a friend, uh, but it's now, it's not even you know, an economic rival, but, but it's now a, an outright adversary. Um, and the US is now wishing arm on the Chinese economy. Um, and so the, the question became, became, how do we cushion ourselves against that? Now, if you're China, you have three massive weaknesses. Uh, those massive weaknesses, the first one, which the US exploited in 2018, was is dependence on foreign semiconductors. Uh, so the way China's trying to deal with this is by plowing money into its own semiconductor industry. The second uh, weakness uh, of China is that China still needs to import massive amounts of energy. Um, and that 80% of the energy that China imports, imports is imported through oceans that are controlled by the United States. So if the US ever decided to do to China what it did to Japan in the 1930s and embargo uh, energy, then the Chinese economy could rapidly implode. So, so that's the second big weakness. And then the third big weakness of China is that most of China's trade remains denominated in US dollars. And so if tomorrow the US decided to uh, do what it's done to Iran or to Venezuela and to say nobody is allowed to trade with China in US dollars anymore, then uh, you know, Chinese trade would implode, the economy would struggle, et cetera. Um, so since you know, 2018, China's been trying to do three things. Reduce its dependency on foreign semiconductors, and that's a big ask because it takes a lot of investment and um, and it's you know it's it's challenging. The second is reduce its dependency on energy imported through the oceans, and the third is reduce its dependency on the dollar. Now, why did I you know want to illustrate this? Because the the Russian war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, helps China dramatically on the last two of these three necessities. Um, you know, on, on the second one, on energy, basically China all of a sudden becomes the only buyer of Russian energy in size. Uh, and, and I know Russia is selling energy to India and it's selling energy to Thailand, et cetera, but, uh, you know, China shares a massive land border uh, with, with the U.S. And I also know, of course, that most of Russia's energy and, uh, sorry, land border with Russia, not to yeah, the yeah. U.S., yeah. apologies. Um, China uh, shares a massive land border with Russia. I know that most of the uh, energy infrastructure in Russia is geared towards Western Europe, um, but that happens to be the one thing that China's pretty good at, building energy quickly and on the cheap. Um, right. uh, building infrastructure, sorry. Building infrastructure quickly and on the cheap. Uh, so in the coming years, I think one thing you can bet on is that you're going to see dramatic investments by Chinese firms into Russia uh, and, and into the Russian energy sector to basically capture a lot of the energy that used to go west will now be going east. So that's you know the first thing that changes. The second uh, and massively important thing that changes is that this energy that Russia, that China, excuse me, this energy that China is now buying is um, is being bought in renminbi rather than U.S. dollars, uh, and that's a that's a dramatic shift in our global financial architecture. The fact that the world's number one energy importer is now shifting its um, its uh, trade with Russia, the world's number one uh, commodity exporter, uh, from U.S. dollar to renminbi, um, is a dramatic paradigm shift. You know, look at it this way. China every month buys roughly $8 billion worth 
of commodities from Russia. So every month, so that's you know roughly hundred billion dollars a year. Um, that's hundred billion that China used to have to earn by selling stuff to the U.S., selling tennis shoes, tennis rackets, underwear, you name it. They yeah. would earn that money, and and then they'd be able to go out and and buy the energy they need from from Russia. Now all of a sudden, because, just, because they had to buy it in U.S. dollars, that's why they had because to go they had to, yeah they had to earn earn the dollars first before they could spend the dollars. Yeah. Um, now all of a sudden they get to print the renminbi um, and they get to give russia renminbi for energy that they used to have to to pay in us dollars now not only that this changes the equation globally because now what the next thing that happens is china can turn around and tell indonesia indonesia i like your coal so much better than this russian crap uh, you know, your coal is such better quality than this terrible Russian uh, Russian coal. However, Russia gives me deals in renminbi. You know, for you, I have to pay in U.S. dollars. So unless you accept my renminbi, yeah. I'm going to keep buying from Russia. And then you can do the same thing for Brazil with the iron ore. And you can do the same thing in Saudi Arabia with the oil. Um, right. And so, you know, this, this month for the first time ever, uh, Russia became uh, China's number one uh, source for oil stopped being Saudi Arabia and became Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and so over the long term, if you're Saudi Arabia and you look at this, you think, okay, uh, maybe this isn't such a big problem immediately because Europe is desperate for energy. So whatever I'm not selling to China anymore, I can sell to Europe. Um, but Europe at the same time is saying by 2035, we need to be all electric cars. Uh, yeah. So there's there there's a back and forth there uh the bottom line being that if you're china and if you think that you have three key weaknesses semiconductors energy and us dollar the current war and the diplomatic diplomatic isolation of russia helps you solve two out of these three uh weaknesses yes yes no i'm i'm so even with this pivot to purchasing so much Russian energy, and I believe there's already discussions between China and Gazatomprom to put a pipeline underneath Mongolia straight to China and reroute the energy that's currently being um, pushed to Europe. And once that's there, like once those pipelines are built, yeah, you know, they're there forever. They're there forever. And so you can look at this and say, you know, of the, of the top 10 energy producing countries in the world, it looks like 70% of them are, are likely to align with China. I mean, I, I believe China is still Saudi's biggest client when it comes to energy. Is that, is that correct? It is. It is. Because, again, it's, um, you know, it's... Uh, the customer is always right, right? 100%. Um, yeah, you're going to take care of your bottom line. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if the customer is always right, uh, you know, China for any, practically any massive energy producer, and this is true for natural gas, this is true for oil, this is true for coal, China today is the number one, uh, the number one customer. Right. And then so you've got Saudi kind of in the balance, you've got India, Iran, Brazil, you mentioned Brazil, you know, there's a handful of countries that would entertain that deal, right? We'll buy everything you've got. I mean, China will buy all the excess energy on the market more than likely. And if countries will take renminbi, it's uh, it's likely to occur. Well, in essence, it becomes free for them, right? Because if I'm buying, if I'm China and I'm buying a bunch of oil in renminbi, yeah. I, can print, I can print the renminbi. And this means that Russia, who's on the other side, 
with those RMB, either they can buy goods from China, uh, so they buy you know goods, or they just reinvest them in um, in renminbi bonds. Um, now here's a here's a question for you, Dan. So this may sound silly because U.S. prints money like crazy and then uses it to buy commodities, but is there a difference when this occurs in China? And I'm talking about you know the net asset value of the U.S. dollar is largely tied to the confidence in the, the trust, the, the justice system, the governance, right, of the Western world. And you could argue there's corruption, sure, but relative to, you know, authoritarian governments, it is a predictable, safe, and just country. You know, is a printed currency that's just being printed at will to purchase international commodities, being renminbi, does that have less value? Is it, is it a bigger risk to accept that currency? You know, can the same game be played out of China that's been played from the U.S.? What do you, what do you think? I think that's a that's a great point. Look, there's there's so many things that underpin the U.S. dollar, uh, but one of them, as you point out, is the rule of law, uh, and I would say that's the the greatest comparative advantage of of the broader Western world. Really, um, is the belief that you can be black, brown, yellow, white, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu. It doesn't matter. Mm. You get in front of a court of law, you're going to get the same fair shake as as the next guy, uh, and this has been you know the I would say the strongest pillar on which Western economic success has been built, because it has meant that if you're a rich Chinese guy, the first thing you do when you make money is buy a house in Vancouver, mm -hmm. uh, because of because of the view that you know tomorrow the Chinese Communist Party can confiscate all your stuff um, and throw you in a Lao guy, um, the Chinese gulag. But you know at least your kids will be safe in in a house in Vancouver, right? Um, and so for the past, I would say, 25 years, really since the Asian crisis, we've lived in a world uh, which to some extent was a little bit upside down um, because what you had was you had, uh, you know, very rich countries like the U.S., like the U.K., like France, uh, running very large twin deficits, large budget deficits and large current account deficits. Um, and those deficits be financed really by... Uh, people in uh, emerging markets. So poor countries were in essence subsidizing consumption in, in rich countries. Um, and they were doing it through two ways. One of them, it's either central banks kept wanting to accumulate US treasuries on the perception that having a big cushion of US treasuries made, meant that in a crisis, you, you could never be brought down, number right. one. Or number two, uh, it was done by the private sector, i.e. the rich Chinese guy buying a house in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, we, you know, the Western world could run large current account deficits uh, funded through the sale of, of assets. Um, now, uh, and again, because of this very core belief that you can be, you know, black, white, yellow, brown, etc., it didn't matter in front of a court of law, you had the same rights, except we in the Western world, in our great wisdom, have just changed that, right? We've just said, we've just added a little apprentices and said, except if you're Russian. If you're right. Russian, you can, we can take all your shit. Like we can take your football club, we can take your yacht, we can take your private jet, we can take your house in Mayfair. Uh, if you're Russian, you're a bad dude. Uh, even if you have nothing to do with the decision to to invade Ukraine, even if you, uh, but you know, just the fact that you're Russian. So, um, you know, this is a very troubling change if you look if you live in emerging markets because, 
you feel like, hold on, I've seen this movie before. When people get tried for being part of a group instead of being tried as an individual, mm -hmm. when stuff gets taken away without due process, without uh, uh, courts of law, without uh, debates in parliament, when just you know, one morning, Krista Freeland decides to wake up and says, you know what, we're gonna take away all the assets of, of Russian people in Canada. Uh, and the justice minister turns around and says, well, there's nothing in the bill of rights that says that foreigners are, you know, have the right to property in Canada. Um, if you're a rich Chinese guy, you think, hold on, this wasn't a deal. You know, I bought my house in Vancouver on the premise that if ever things went bad, Mm -hmm. I, if ever Xi Jinping decides to invade Taiwan, this was my bolt hole. Now you're telling me that if Xi Jinping invades Taiwan, you confiscate my, my Vancouver house. Well, this Vancouver house isn't what I thought it was, uh, yeah. and I don't want it anymore. Um, and that, to me, is, is the dramatic shift that, that is unfolding. So to your point, you know, this is a, uh, an argument I've made several times in the past five, five years or so, uh, and even more so after COVID. Uh, and that is that... If you look back at the past 20 years, 20 years ago, when we let China in the WTO, the argument presented, whether by Bill Clinton or George W. Bush on both sides of the aisle in every country, was that by trading more with China, they would become more like us, uh, that we'd see the same kind of move towards democracy that we saw in South Korea, that we saw in Taiwan, that right. basically, as, as China got more exposure to the Western world, they'd have more rule of law, they'd become more democratic, uh, and everything would be better. Um, and, you know, I think it was a very uh, cogent argument to make at the time. 20 years later, we now know that this isn't the case, number mm -hmm. one. Uh, number two, instead of them becoming more like us, it's us who's become more like them. Um, you know, I'm not like if you go back to the beginning of COVID, there was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying how the COVID lockdowns in China uh, was the symbol of a failing system. Um, right. They had to lock down, lock down their populations. Uh, three months later, we were arresting priests in Canada, priests in France for for daring to give mass. I would have never thought that possible in a country of civil rights like Canada, that pastors could end up in jail. Um, and so, you know, you look at everything that's happened, you know, the, the whole history of political science is deciding where the border is between the rights of the individuals and the interests of the group, right? Yeah. And in Asian countries, the interests of the group predominate over the interests of the individual. Um, and over the rights of the individual. The interests of the group are very strong and the rights of the individual are very weak. Well, I would argue that in the past five years, and especially since COVID started, the rights of the individuals all across the Western world keep on getting more and more crushed, less freedom of speech, less, less freedom of association. Um, and against that, supposedly, for the interests of the group. Um, you know, all, all these curt curtailing of the rights of the individuals, uh, including now the, confis the outright confiscation of assets. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's not forget that this is like, you know, again, without due process, without debate in parliament, it's like, we're just taking your stuff for the interests of the group. We're yeah. just taking your stuff. Uh, so now, again, if you live in emerging markets, you start to think, hold on, you know, what's the difference between deploying capital in the West where it can get confiscated or deploying capital in the emerging markets where it can also get confiscated. Maybe I'm better off deploying capital in emerging markets where the long-term returns, the promise of long-term returns is actually superior. You're right. And 
you know, that's a really great example because I've been so focused on the, you know, U.S. Europe confiscation of the 600 billion of uh, USD reserves, which is precedent, right? What we should look at that as is like that's the door opening to what could become a very slippery slope. And probably central banks all over the world are saying that asset, US dollar, isn't what I thought it was. And, and maybe it's time to rebalance a little bit. And we're seeing more allocations go towards gold or bigger baskets of currencies. You know, in Israel, for example, they, they dumped a bunch of USD and replaced it with Canadian, Australian, and yen, actually. But, you know, there was a micro- it's actually on this, on, on this, sorry to interrupt you, Jay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But if you look at, you know, the massive sell-off in bond markets, it starts in late February. Um, you know, the, if you look, I, I can show you the charts, but the massive self in U.S. Treasuries, the massive self in German boons, it starts in late February uh, following the confiscation of reserves. Because indeed, you know, what's the point of owning bonds that deliver minus two, minus three, minus four percent real right. and that one day that one day can go to zero? Like the whole point is that, OK, these things are the ultimate safety. If, you know, if, if conceptually these things overnight go to zero, then they're really not worth the paper they're printed on. Yeah. And, and to build on top of that, you talked about the confiscation of all the oligarchs' assets, which is to say, you're right. At our discretion, if you're wealthy and Russian, that's enough. And, yeah. you know, the Vancouver housing market's a great example because that's, that's been the safe haven asset, right? And people often... Chinese money isn't buying Vancouver real estate for the price appreciation. It's bu they're buying it as maybe the plan B or maybe just a safe place to park a couple million dollars. Absolutely. Um, okay. Now there was a micro example of this that occurred in Canada um, last year or early about six months ago. Uh, and I I'm talking about the, the freedom convoy, right? Where yep. a bunch of Canadian civilians had their financial assets seized by the Canadian government because they donated via a GoFundMe page a completely legitimate and credible platform to a cause they believed in. And then at the discretion of our leader, those financial assets were frozen. Their personal bank accounts were frozen, which politics aside- Sounds, very, sounds that, very Chinese, right? Sounds very Chinese, right? It's a bit it's, crazy. We're becoming, we're, yeah. we're, becoming, we're becoming like them. They were supposed to become like us, but they're become, we're becoming like them. And again, you, you, know, it, you know, I've heard- way too many people talk about that event and they're like, well, it was, you know, it was a good response. It had to happen to crack. And, you know, again, I'm like, everything's a precedent. It's always a precedent, right? The door is now open, right? So will this become look, a slippery slope if, and what does that look like? Well, look, if, if a political leader can decide to freeze bank accounts, to freeze insurance policies on, on people that he doesn't even want to sit down with to discuss, Right yeah. on, on if if there had been discussions, negotiations, uh, and if you know a deal had been struck, and then the other side hadn't stuck to their side of the deal or whatever else, but here there was there was no, you know these guys were peacefully demonstrating, uh, asserting their rights to do so, and in the pro and their the punishment for having the nerve to go against their elected government was to basically have their lives upended. Um, yeah. No, I think if you're living in any democracy, you have to look at this as a deeply, deeply disturbing precedent. And if you live in an emerging market, you look at this and think, okay, my capital is not safe in these types of countries. So where is my capital safe? Is it in Singapore? Mm. Is it in Dubai? Is it in Mauritius? It's basically in, I would say, 
offshore financial centers uh, that um, uh, that do not depend on uh, well that are geopolitically neutral. Let's let's put it this way. Okay. Uh, that that are not that you know as as the world increasingly seems to be veering towards some kind of new cold war with the Western world on one side and Russia and China on the other, mm. finding financial centers that are like that are like the Switzerland of, of yore, uh, but Switzerland is no longer that. So maybe the new Switzerland is Dubai, maybe it's Singapore, maybe it's Mauritius, I don't know. But um, yeah, this is where I think if you're a rich Saudi prince, uh, if you're, uh, you know, uh, an Indonesian, tycoon who's made a fortune in coal um and you think because if tomorrow you know who's now that we've gone down this path who's to say that tomorrow if 20 idiots decide to hijack a plane and fly it into sears towers does that mean that the assets of saudi princes get confiscated mm -hmm. um or if uh you know mbs decides to kill a journalist in one of his consulates next time around does that mean that you know the assets of a saudi prince get or you know we get more hurricanes and we blame climate change. So let's confiscate the assets of Indonesian coal miners. Uh, you know, it's, you, you get to a point, it's like, you know, where'd you stop, right? Uh, 100%. 100%. So then let me ask you, put yourself in the position of uh, US leaders. And it's easy to say like, uh, these decisions are very short-sighted. They didn't see the repercussions, but is it possible, Louis, that there's a longer game being played where you know, the actions of, of the U.S. administration to confiscate these assets obviously send a message to the world that the game has changed. I mean, they had to have known this, right? I, I would think. Maybe not. Maybe they're blindsided by their own decision. But, you know, let's say they, they knew what the consequences of this decision were going to be and that it would sort of reshape the geopolitical landscape. Is there a longer game that could be in the minds of uh, the, the superpower in the U.S.? What do you think? I don't know. I think they've just undermined their biggest comparative advantage. So mm. if they've knowingly undermined that, I hope whatever the longer game is, is, is well worth it. Uh, because you've just, uh, in essence, you're, you're sewing off the branch on, on which you're sitting in. Um, I personally don't think uh, there is a longer game, uh, just as there was no longer game with the COVID lockdowns or the vaccine mandates or, or anything else. It's just that you know, I think we increasingly live in a world, and I've written a couple pieces on this. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm going to be a big vulgar, but the uh, the uh, the guiding principle of our time is CYA. It's cover your ass. Um, and we now live in a world where you know something bad happens, and you have fifty thousand people that start screaming on Twitter that something must be done about the whatever bad thing that just occurred. Mm -hmm. And so. Politicians respond to this like, oh, something must be done. Oh, this is something. So let's do this. So, you know, we, we have COVID. Um, and obviously it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad and it's terrible, etc. Something must be done. Oh, you know, Italy's locking down. So that's something. So let's, let's all do that. Whether lockdowns work or not, etc. We'll figure out later. Um, the, you know, oh, uh, there, you know, there is, we, we want to get back to our normal lives. Um, without admitting that lockdowns were a massive mistake. Oh, we, we have 
we have vaccines. Oh, let's just force everyone to have a vaccine. That's something that makes me look strong. Uh, even if even if it pisses off dramatically 25% of my population. Uh, and even if it's forcing people to take vaccine tramples over people's civil rights and religious freedoms and 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 whatever else, you know, you know, this mm -hmm. makes me look good. So I'm just gonna do it. Um, and again, without thinking of the long-term precedence that that this uh, th that this creates. I think the, the big problem with all of this, and you're seeing this in country after country, is that it tears apart at the social contract. Um, you know, when you have all these uh, measures that are taken uh, very much in a knee-jerk reaction to in, in a cover-your-ass way, and that end up antagonizing each time 15, 20% of the population um, and antagonizing them in a visceral way. You know, uh, you know the, the, the people who were uh, anti-vaccine were anti-vaccine in an extremely, you know, they felt passionately about this, right? Uh, and, and they went through, you know, frankly, um, you know, a rough six or nine months uh, oh, yeah. a year with, with, with no lives, right? Yeah. Uh, it split families, et cetera. Um, and so you end up dividing your, your society into ever more smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. And, and the, risk, the risk of it all is that at some point, uh, you don't have a majority of people who buy into the same social contract and, and the whole thing implodes. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, this is, you look at the latest French election uh, with the parliament there basically being a third far right, a third far left, and, mm -hmm. and a third in the center, mm -hmm. you end up with countries that become less and less governable. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, so we're, we're in essence, you know, heading towards a new Cold War with Russia and China with semiconductors having been weaponized, our currency systems having been weaponized, our energy infrastructure having been weaponized, China in the process of weaponizing global supply chains. Um, and we're doing this at a time when our countries have seldom been so divided on themselves. Um, you know, when, when World War II started, and even when the first Cold War started, uh, you know, 90% of Americans were gung-ho on the Cold War. Um, mm. And, and you know, when World War II started, people were, were gung-ho. Here, we're, we're starting all these with highly divided populations, which, again, it's, uh, it's, it's problematic. So, you know, we've weaponized the currency, we've weaponized energy. Right away, I'm, I'm thinking, when do we weaponize food? Right. And similar to the energy producing countries that lead the world, the majority you could speculate will align with China. Same thing in terms of food production. Right. That's how I see it anyways. Um, you know, India, Brazil, China, biggest food producer in the world. Sure. USA over there on their own. Uh, Russia and Ukraine produce 25 percent of the grain that hits the global market. And we'll see how that shakes out. But, you know, is that. Is that next in line, Louis? Are you, are you watching that? What, what do you think? Well, look, uh, most economic activity is energy transformed, right? And uh, and this is especially true of food. I mean, food by and large is energy transformed. It takes a whole lot of energy to grow food. Uh, or at the very least, it takes a whole lot of energy to put food on my plate and your plate. Mm. Um, you know, you need energy, you need diesel for the tractor, you need uh, ammonia for the fertilizer, uh, you need um, 
you know, the energy to, 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 pick, to pick the darn things, uh, to move it, to freeze it, sure. uh, so to cook it. Um, so food is by and large energy transformed. So typically when you have an energy crisis, you have a food crisis. Uh, right. right. The, two, the two go hand in hand. Um, we are in an energy crisis today and we are in a food crisis uh, today. Um, it was, I think we were entering, we entered into, um, into 2022 on a very delicate balance for both, for both energy and food. Mm-hmm. Um, now, arguably, you know, that this will be debated probably for generations to come, but had we not had knuckleheaded energy policies and food policies for 10 years, maybe Putin wouldn't have uh, felt that he could go and invade Ukraine. Maybe the fact that we were so dependent on his energy and his fertilizer gave him the, the, the I would say the, you know, the conumption to, to go and invade his neighbor. Um, hmm. You know, but we, we inherently strengthened his hand much more than we should have felt comfortable doing. Um, and, but having done that, you know, he's, he's exploiting it to the max. So, now the problem with food is it's always the weakest links that break first, right? And and they are breaking. You're looking at Sri Lanka. You're looking at Laos. Uh, <clears throat> you're going to see the same thing all across North Africa and the Middle East, as you saw in 2011. Um, so yeah, we we are heading into a food crisis now. On the plus side, you know, North America, the whole America's continent is fine on food. You know, yeah. where it's not their 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 net exporters. There's there's no real issue there. The, the issue will be all across Asia, Africa, um, and Southern Europe. Right, right, right. That's where we'll see and are seeing already food riots break out. We're just food riots, and then and then you'll get uh, on the back of that, you'll get an Im- an immigration crisis like you had last time around when you had you had food riots all across the Arab world at the Arab Spring of 2011, which mm-hmm. led to civil wars, and from there a massive immigration wave into uh, into europe which led to a further rise in populism right. um you know all that all that is indeed problematic so you just mentioned the rise in populism i got to pull on a thread here you know what is more likely at this point do you think louis um the u.s formally entering into a hot war in order to protect their energy interests or uh, some kind of a civil outbreak within the United States as the internal divide continues to increase. So I don't think the U.S. is the weak link here. Uh, to okay. be to be honest, the U.S. is not the weak link, and that you know the U.S. is energy self-sufficient, uh, more or less. Okay, sure, it needs you know some some heavy heavy crude that it needs to import, etc. But you know, unlike previous cycles, the, the the big difference now is when energy prices go up in the U.S., it means that money moves from New York to Texas or from Michigan to Oklahoma, but it broadly stays in the US relative to previous cycles where money went to Venezuela and money went to Nigeria or, or Canada um, and the US would be pushed into a recession. So I, I think you know on, on this time around, how does it manifest itself in the US? I think it'll manifest itself by the bankruptcy of cities in uh, you know, it'll be like the 1970s all over again, where New York City went bust and Detroit went bust. And um, I think this is this is how it'll manifest itself in the U.S. But overall, you know, the U.S. produces food, the U.S. produces energy. So that's not where the, the weak link is. The, the, the weak link is in Europe. Uh, you know, right. Europe is the one that is going to be running out of energy. Uh, and Europe, 
I mean, right now, Europe has to make a very simple choice is, do we turn back massively to coal, uh, option one, or do we start rationing energy? But rationing energy means economic depression. Uh, it yeah. means, you know, that basically you cut off all your industry to make sure that the consumer still gets energy. Uh, so, you know, I think in Europe, we've basically let the perfect become the enemy of the good uh, in that, you know, over the past 10 years, we've shut down most of our nuclear. Uh, we've shut down a lot of our natural gas uh, on the hope that somehow there would be tremendous productivity gains in solar and in wind. Uh, right. And those, have, those having not occurred, uh, we're now left with no choice but economic depression or the burning of coal. Um, or so, I suppose to pivot, I mean, tell me what you think about this, or to pivot and say, look, it gets cold here in the winter. We, we got to go back to Russia and make amends here. We don't have any choice. We have to do it's in the best interest of our people. And right now their homes are cold. We can't afford to heat them. We have a local energy source. Yes, it's hostile. Yes, we said we wouldn't. We would, we would, uh, you know, move on. But like, yeah. what, what do you think? Is that is that yeah. a possibility? No, no, that's that, that's a third possible option. Okay. Um, but uh, I think you'll have <laughs> countries like Poland will just say no. We're doing coal. Okay. Um, and in fact, Poland is already there, like cranking up the coal like crazy. Okay. Um, so. You know, and it'll be hard to sell. I mean, you're right. That's a possibility. You know, either way, you're going to have to sell a tough one to the European population. Uh, on the one hand, you've sold them that that Putin was the next Hitler. Um, so it's hard to sell them on we're going to send him a bunch of money. Um, on the other, you've told them if we do coal, you know, the planet has five years to live. Uh, so it's hard to do coal. And, but it's also hard to tell, look people in the eye and say, you're going to freeze to death this winter. Totally. Um, yeah. And when things are so, bad enough, right? Like civil unrest breaks out and, and, uh, well, this is, this is how democracy, this is the good thing about democracy is I think what will happen in Europe is that as we enter into the energy crisis, some politicians will stand up and says, there is a solution to this. It's coal vote for me and I'll turn on the coal. Uh, and I think people, and as you do, your electricity bills will fall in ha by half because coal is by far the cheapest way to produce electricity. So for me, out of these three bad choices, coal is probably the, the path of least resistance. Um, and I think this is, this is where we'll end up, uh, mostly for democratic reasons, because fundamentally that's what people will choose. Interesting. Okay, now I want to uh, pivot. But there may be some pain. There may be some pain before we choose that. I, I would take pain, I imagine, in order to get the population to choose that, right? Like you, yeah. you yep. tend to respond to pain before uh, people are more reactive than they are proactive most of the time. Okay, yep. um, I want to pivot a bit to uh, capital allocation. Um, you know, you hold a European passport, correct? I do, French. French, you have business in Hong Kong and Beijing and Canada and a house houses in Canada. So talk to me first about the individual who is fortunate to have a bit of cash right now. They're not quite sure where to put it. It feels like nowhere is safe um, and they're just looking to preserve capital. Where, where are you advising your clients? Look, where are you looking? Talk to me about what you're doing in that, in that scenario, Louis. Okay, well, look, the first thing to acknowledge is we're in a bear market. You know, today we are in a bear market. And in my career, bear markets have only ended when you've had either A, the Fed start to ease and inject liquidity back into the system, 
we're not there yet. Uh, I think I think there'll be a story for 2023, but it's not yet a story for 2022. And when you say bear market, um, you're referring to the broad equities market in the United States. Actually, it's interesting because today we have a bear market in both equities and bonds, right? Um, you you have a, you have a bear market in equities. You have a bear market in uh, in government bonds. You have a horrible bear market in high yield credit. Um, and you're starting to have a bear market in uh, in real estate. So just like for years, we had the everything bull market thanks to massive amounts of Fed liquidity injections. Um, as the Fed just about starts to pull back, because let's not kid ourselves that they've done much yet, um, we're starting an, an everything bear market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> now, how do bear markets end? Either with the Fed easing, we're not there, or with energy prices collapsing. Uh, we're not there either because energy, you know, collapsing adds a lot of liquidity into the system uh, or the U.S. dollar collapsing, which allows central banks outside of the U.S. to ease monetary policy and um, and yeah, inject lots of liquidity in the system. Now, of these three, you know, right now you've got not, none of the three markers you would look for in terms of uh, calling for the end of a bear market, which means that uh, you know you have to remain prudent, you have to remain very disciplined, and that your positioning has to be small. Uh, if you're you know a, a retail investor, a private investor, definitely you know making money in bear markets is tough. Um, I've never played American football, but you know in American football you've got your offensive team and your defensive team. In a bear market, you've got your defensive team on the pitch. Um, the 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 idea is not to score points. The idea is to not give points away. Um, so, so that's the first, I think, you know, mental hurdle to, right. to, to adjust to as you deploy capital. So, so that's number one. And, you know, if and when the Fed starts to ease or if and when the US dollar starts to collapse or if and when oil prices start to tank, then you can start shifting your team on the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can start putting your offensive team back on. Uh, but for now, you get your defensive team on. Now, this brings me to my second point. Um, and that is that if you look at bear markets historically, the reason for bear markets, the reason we have them, they're not pleasant, but the reason we have them is typically to pass on the leadership from one group of assets, one set of assets to another. Um, so if you look at you know, the, the 2000 uh, bear market passed on leadership from US growth stocks to in essence, emerging markets and global value stocks. And then in 2000, uh, in 2008, you moved from uh, financials, uh, which became complete dogs and state dogs for a decade, uh, to uh, initially commodities. And then in 2011, you had a, bear, a commodity bear market that started, and the leadership moved to US growth stocks again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, today, so I think one of the best things you can do during a bear market is look at relative performances. Uh, you know, what's outperforming and what's underperforming. Um, and it's tempting to go into what's underperforming the most, right? It's like, oh, this is sold off so much. I'm going to mm. buy it and it's going to bounce back the most. Uh, but actually what you want to do in a bear market is look for the new trends that will carry your, your next bull market. Um, and what's fascinating to me amidst this carnage uh, in 2022 in global markets is the massive outperformance of emerging market bonds, 
uh, number one. It's the massive outperformance of emerging market of a number of emerging market currencies, and of course the outperformance of commodities. You know, in an environment where you know growth is is weakening, where the Fed is tightening, where the U.S. dollar is going up. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. If you told me at the beginning of this year, Louis, you know what? The yen's going to 135. The euro is going to 105. Uh, U.S. bond yields are going to 3%. Um, you know, the S&P is losing 20%. Oh, and by the way, the best performing asset class will be emerging market bonds, emerging market currencies. Um, I would have said, Jay, you're an idiot. Uh, Jay, Jay, you've never been through a single cycle, have you? Uh, because each time you have a Fed tightening cycle, each time the U.S. dollar goes up, emerging markets get taken to the woodshed. Um, but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. Look at the outperformance of the Latin, Latin American equity markets. Uh, uh, you know, China has been taken to the woodshed for the past 10 years. Uh, in the past three months, it started to outperform in the face of continued lockdown and you know crazy lockdowns um so there's a lot of signs out there that i think the the next trend uh surrounds emerging markets um and so this is the, you know this is the the next big bull market which in this age of weaponization of everything makes sense because you know if for no other reason that i think increasingly emerging market savers will now keep their savings in emerging markets rather than redeploy them in developed markets for all the reasons we discussed. Which is the a, a big discussion around deglobalization. And I've heard you talk about this when, when often when we think about deglobalization, we think about Nike taking factories back and, and bringing them back on shore, right? Let's get our sneakers made here at home. But the bigger piece of this is the deglobalization of the financial economy you said it, emerging market savers, keeping cash in emerging markets. And that's going to be a big shift. That'll be substantial because if you look at the balance sheets uh, you know, of these countries, that's often emerging markets that have the healthiest balance sheets today, correct? Absolutely. So no, it's look, it's the big theme of mine, the deglobalization of financial flows being more important than deglobalization of supply chains. And to be honest, I think, I think we're seeing a sort of the ultimate example of it through um, through Russia, right? I mean, in essence, we've just told Russia, you can't deploy your savings abroad anymore, right? You can right. make all this money, you can sell this natural gas, you can sell this coal, this iron ore, this oil, whatever money you make has to stay in Russia from now on. Mm -hmm. And what's the end result? The Russian ruble goes through the roof. I mean, yeah. because if Russia's running current account surpluses of $300 billion a year, uh, and now all of Russia's trade has to be denominated in, in, in Russian ruble. Well, guess what? Nobody owns the ruble. So that means everybody becomes a force buyer of ruble. Now, imagine if tomorrow, in the world of tomorrow, China says, you know what? I'm happy to sell you sneakers and iPods uh, and iPads and, and whatever else, um, but you have to pay me in renminbi. Mm -hmm. Do you own it? Do you own any renminbi? Does, you know, does your neighbor, does anybody in the Western world? Because everything you buy at the Walmart is coming from China. And if now that needs to start being priced in renminbi, mm -hmm. then there's an inherent short position on the renminbi of more than $600 billion a year, since that's the, the size of China's current account surplus. Um, Hmm. And so you, you could, you'd see, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's just, I think you've had the ultimate example of it with, with Russia, you know, everybody's scratching their heads thinking, 
ooh, you know, what's what's happened with, you know, the ruble was supposed to be rubble, according to, to Biden. The ruble right. was supposed to implode. Instead, it's at a decade high against every, every major currency out there. Uh, and this for two reasons. Uh, the first reason, of course, is that Russia decided to weaponize the energy markets, uh, number one. And the second reason, uh, just as importantly, is the, the deglobalization of financial flows. Right. Yeah, as soon as you started talking about, like, look for what has been outperforming, right? Immediately, I was like, the ruble, oddly enough, the ruble <laughs> has been massively yeah. outperforming. Okay, um, similar question. So if it's- now, I'm not, to be, to be very clear, just so there's, I'm not telling your, your auditors to go buy a bunch of ruble assets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, just yeah. To be, no, I appreciate um, the disclaimer. <laughs> and, and just for reference, yes, I never tell anybody what to buy on this show. I just- uh, I strictly, like I'm the biggest uh, beneficiary or benefactor of this channel. Somebody called me out for using that word inappropriately <laughs> the other day. Anyways, I do this for my own good. So uh, same question then, uh, different context. So if it's the same answer, all good. You're not sitting on a pocket of cash, a pile of cash looking to protect it, uh, but your income's strong. You may not have a ton of savings and you just want to start dollar cost averaging in to something. And we're talking about the next 10, 20 years of your savings plan, right? 10 years, whatever. Where, where, I mean, you got kids about that age, Louis. So where, where are you thinking that's a smart place to look right now? If you're just parting with a bit of cash that you can afford to lose and your time horizon's 10 years, what direction are you going? Uh, well, look, I think if you look at just in terms of pure cash flow generating capacity today, uh, it's hard to beat the energy sector. Uh, mm. You know, the, the, the energy sector, uh, you know, because of ESG reasons, because it was such a horrible investment for 15 years, uh, you know, you can find all sorts of reasons, but it's been a dog with fleas, a dog with fleas mm -hmm. now for, for so long. It had six months of, of rebound. Um, the past two or three weeks have been pretty brutal for it. But, you know, you look at, uh, and I would say the dirtier the energy, the cheaper it is, right? So if you look at, you know, some, some of the large U.S. coal producers are trading at one times EBITDA, you know. So, you know, unless, you know, unless over the next 10 years, we completely walk away from, and I mean 100% walk away from gas, from oil, from coal, these things are inherently going to be three, five, 10 baggers. Um, mm -hmm. And here's, here's, a fun, here's a fun stat for you. In, uh, in 2001, 86% of the world's uh, energy consumption was carbon-based, basically coal, oil, and, and natural gas. So 86% in, in two decades ago. Um, and of course, over the past two decades, we've made tremendous efforts to, to move away from carbon, right? We've plowed money into uh, solar. We've plowed money into, uh, into wind. You know, guess what today the carbon this mix, the, the, the carbon mix is, so sort of 20 years later, uh, the answer is 84%. Uh, so we've gone from over 20 years, we've gone from 86 to 84. So I'm going to go out on a limb and that in 10 years time, we're not going to be at zero. Uh, mm. You know, and even if you're at 50%, which I highly, highly doubt, mm -hmm. uh, even if you're at 50%, these, a lot of these names are still making a lot, a lot of money. Now, these names are volatile. Um, and, and so that's why, you know, dollar cost averaging on them makes sense. But I would say any month where the sector is down 10, 20%, 
you pick up you pick some up uh so so energy energy is the obvious one uh for me you know emerging market um uh, equities is uh is another um okay and granted the two the two are fairly correlated you know if a lot of the global energy demand comes out of uh, of of emerging markets um yeah those are those are the themes i like a lot and remind me do you you have an etf focused on emerging markets is that correct uh, we do have an, uh, an emerging market debt ETF. Uh, it's uh, called a, uh, well, it's actually not emerging market. It's a Pan Asian government bond. So okay. the ticker is AGOV, AGOV. Um, so we, we do, yeah, we do, we do have that. Um, we did have some, uh, some Russian bonds uh, in there. Uh, so we took a hit uh, and we basically had to mark, to mark these downs to, uh, to, to, to peanuts. Um, so we took a hit on the, on the Russian bonds when, um, uh, and here I'll put my hand up. I, I just, I didn't think, uh, I didn't think he was going to invade. I, yeah, yeah, I, thought yeah, well, was, I, th I thought it was crazy and, and I was wrong. You were uh, alone there. It's, it's one of those events that we can look back on and, you know, hindsight bias. It's always like, oh, we knew it's so easy to see that this was going to happen. Yeah. Right? In reality, it's never uh, that way. Well, for me, for me, for me, the main thing, everybody kept telling me, well, he's got 200,000 men at the border. And I kept saying, Ukraine's as big a country. It's a, a big, actually it's a bit bigger than France. You don't invade a country with two hundred thousand men. You need like two and a half million, not right. two hundred thousand. Right. Uh, so to me, that made no sense uh, yeah. invading with two hundred thousand. And as it turns out, two hundred thousand was too few to invade, or at least make a good job of it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know who I've got coming on the show uh, later this week is Jimmy Rogers, right? And uh, he, he as well. Last time I had him on, he was very bullish Russia. You know. And he was buying yeah. Russian equities and, and Russian oh, look, in bonds. fairness, in fairness, um, on pure, if you take out, and of course that's a, you know, if, if you take out the political risk, which as it turns out was the wrong thing to take out, but if you took out the political risk in Russia, on paper, it looked awesome. You know, right? budget, yes. budgets, budget surpluses and, budget surplus, and trade, po positive trade surpluses, rates. positive, yeah. positive real rates and yeah. uh, undervalued currency. And I mean, it, it ticked all the boxes. You Diverse commodity them. exporter leading into a commodity. Yeah, it looked, yeah, yeah. it yeah. looked, it looked so good. And yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, it was, it was very easy. It was very easy. And I guess that's where we all become, uh, you know, we, we all have our biases. It's uh, you want to believe in the story. The story was so good and you want to believe it and it's so bad that you end up saying, oh, the political risk, forget that. That sure. doesn't matter. And, it, and, and, and then it turns out that it's the only thing that mattered. It's a good reminder about what investing really is, right? It's, yep. uh, yeah. All right. Let me ask you about a couple, I'll call them like independent assets uh, that maybe aren't as tied to the performance of any sovereign nation. Let's go to gold and Bitcoin. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Are you positioned? Anything you want to share on? Start with gold. Yeah, so I've always looked and argued in a number of papers I've written over the years that um, gold is, in essence, a derivative play on emerging markets. That uh, the ultimate buyers of gold all line emerging markets. You know, a third of physical demand is India. Yeah. Another 30% is China. Another 20% is the Middle East. Another 10% is Russia. I mean, basically, physical demand for gold comes from emerging markets. And, you know, for a number of reasons, not least the, the, the reality that either people don't trust in their banking systems, like in, like in India, or people don't trust in their, um, in their politicians, or, um, or simply, you know, cultural reasons. Uh, but so 
gold, when emerging markets thrive, and as people get rich, and I would say especially people in the sort of lower middle class, of which there's just you know such a large number of them. If you look at China, if you look at India, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. As those people get marginally richer, one of the first things they buy is some gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and then gold does very well. And you saw this very clearly between 2001 and 2011 when you had a massive emerging market boom cycle. And during that period, gold went, you know, did, did tremendously well and, you know, went up like eight times or something. Mm-hmm. Um, then emerging markets have, have struggled since then. And so gold, gold has, you know, sort of, uh, I think, been disappointing for a lot of, of gold holders. Um, and I would say especially... Uh, this past year or uh, this past six months, right? You might say, well, hold on, you know, with the war, with oil prices going up, geopolitical uncertainty, you know, you you might have expected gold to do a little bit better than it has. Um, I think that comes down to the uncertainty surrounding emerging markets. And once people realize, hold on, emerging markets are now in a structural bull market, then I think gold gold will do better. Uh, And this might take, you know, Maybe, you know, we'll have to wait till the Fed says I'm done raising rates. Um, you know, so I would I would say, go, look, gold, gold is a coiled spring for me. And I don't know when it's going to pop, but mm. it's a cold spring that uh, that I think will will pop at some point in the next 12, 18 months, whenever the Fed throws in the towel on the hawkish rhetoric. Um, and when that happens, the, the U.S. dollar will go down. The um, uh, emerging markets will will be visibly the parts of the market that massively outperform and, and, and gold will do quite well. Uh, so I feel pretty comfortable talking about gold. I'm a lot less comfortable talking about Bitcoin. Partly, you know, Bitcoin's history is very limited. Um, and, um, and I would say that, you know, so we, we you know, we, we, we don't really have history of Bitcoin through, through full cycles, especially I would say Bitcoin with white participation. Because you could say, oh, well, you know, it was around 15 years ago, et cetera. But it was a tiny market 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was just, yeah. just, a, few, just a few people. Uh, in terms of being a broader asset class with millions of people buying and selling every day, it's a fairly recent new, new phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what's been pretty clear is that as the, the ownership of Bitcoin has widened out, uh, it, it, it's basically become some kind of uh, high beta NASDAQ, right? It's like days where the NASDAQ goes up, Bitcoin is up. Day where the NASDAQ is down, uh, uh, NAS, um, Bitcoin is down. And usually with a beta of two or three times uh, the NASDAQ. Now, yeah. so, you know, for me, you know, Bitcoin at this at this stage, is, it's behaving like, a again, a high, le- high level NASDAQ. And I'm not quite sure why you need that in your portfolio. Uh, you know, I, I personally find the NASDAQ exciting enough. I, I don't need to, to have a high levered play on the NASDAQ, but, uh, but I can understand why people would say, well, you know, for a small part of my assets, uh, I'm going to have some in case Bitcoin ever does fulfill its promise. Um, because if it does ever fulfill its promise, then it's a 10 bagger or 50 bagger or a hundred bagger. Yeah. Um, so for, for, so, which means that, you know, if you're buying it for the 10 bagger or the 50 bagger, it's in essence a call option, right? Uh, and you've got to price it as, as a call option with the volatility of a, of a call option. Uh, and so, you know, it's, I, I can see why some people would, would want it. I struggle to see, 
you know, aside from let's say two, three percent of your portfolio, uh, how it makes sense in a, in a in a broader portfolio. Okay, I have follow-up questions on both of those assets. Uh, if you got to jump, because I'm pretty sure I've gone over time with, <laughs> with you. So I've got I I've got one more, and then unfortunately I've got to jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I got to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. What am I gonna do here? Okay, um, then uh, then let's let's. I'm gonna just mention both, and you can take your pick. So. On the gold front, I've been wondering if it's in the U.S.'s best interest to keep the price low because China and Russia have been such aggressive buyers of gold. Isn't it in the U.S.'s best interest that gold does not appreciate in value? That's one thing I've been wondering about. And the second is I was curious that you seem to have no confidence that Bitcoin could ever become uh, some kind of a reserve asset status, which would require it to graduate from the call option on the NASDAQ which it absolutely is today. And I see it personally. I do have a horse in the race. I treat it as a speculation. It's all I can really look at it as right now. I think 14, 15 years history, similar. It's too young to know what it could become. Um, but I was, I was curious if you had any thoughts that it could become, because it's kind of like the one stock the whole world can buy, right? Yep. Included with network effects. No, I, I look, I think it can. Uh, uh, I think it can. It's... Uh, the fact that it can doesn't mean that it will, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, partly because, you know, something else might come along, partly because. So, like I said, having, you know, some exposure to it for two or three percent of your portfolio makes sense. I think having more than that, you're exposing yourself to a lot of volatility. Uh, I'll tell you what I really don't like about Bitcoin personally. Yeah. Is that yeah. it trades on, is, that, is that it trades on the weekends? So that you don't even get a weekend off. <laughs> yeah, and, right, right, right. and then when you're in a bear market, like looking at your screens, and so you carry that you carry that sort of knot in your stomach. Yeah. Usually you usually you have Saturday and Sunday off, but there you don't even have that. Yeah. Um, the um so no, I think um look, I I think what we've seen with the confiscation of assets. Uh, actually reinforces Bitcoin's uh, proof of concept, right? Uh, if you're if you're a Russian oligarch right now, you probably wish you had a key somewhere with 50 million bucks in Bitcoins. Sure. Um, sure. And so, the as we move into a world where where you have more and more government intervention, where we are going to be pushing digital currencies, where where you know there is going to be an outlawing of cash, um, where indeed governments can seize your bank accounts because you gave 500 bucks to uh, to the Canadian truckers. Yeah. Uh, all that is all that is really a case for Bitcoin. Um, sure. So I'm not saying there's no room for it at all. Uh, I'm just saying like with the current volatility, you got to make sure you size it right. And and I think if you're a private individual, a high net worth individual. Uh, you know, the volatility is always what kills you. And you always end up, when an asset is very volatile, you always end up doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. You, you like, you, you just like, you puke it out at the bottom because you can't take the pain anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if, if you keep the position sizing small enough and you just say, I'm buying this and I'm forgetting about it, then that's fine. Okay. Uh, and indeed okay. to, to play on the idea of the, you know, that in the next 10 years, it will, you know, fulfill its uh fulfill the dream um on gold um i don't think i know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the fed manipulating gold and and this and that uh 
I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm such a believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the Fed has really looked at gold that much in, in, in recent years. Look, it went up eight times between 2000 and, and, and 2009, right? Uh, in 2011. Yeah. Um, and the Fed, I don't think the Fed did very much about it. Uh, for me, the, the weakness or the lack of strength, it's not weakness, but the lack of strength of the past decade or so uh, is a reflection of limited emerging market demand. And, and that's the part for me of the equation that's going to change. That's my big takeaway from this conversation. I mean, one of many, but I feel like I need to become more familiar with the trends of emerging markets and the gold price, because it's not an angle that I've spent a lot of time on. You let me double dip on that final question, Luis. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, on the uh, subject of manipulation, the, I'll just share a quote from, I ran a conference in Vancouver a month ago. And one of my speakers was put on the spot and grilled about gold manipulation. And he said, if you think the, if you think the U.S. government's manipulating the gold market, you need to look at the U.S. Postal Service. They could hardly get a letter to your house yet. You think they're manipulating. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. But, right. but having said that, you should get, uh, yeah, it's it's called Hanlon's Razor, right? The uh, ne- never, never look for conspiracy where ADSC can be a perfect explanation. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and any free market will inevitably yeah. have some manipulation. That's part of a free market. It occurs. But it's, it's hard for it to last very, very long. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? You should ask. You should ask the question to Jim Rogers. He'd probably have a very different answer than me. I will. Hundred percent. I will. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Lily, this has been super fun. Thanks so much for coming on. And, Pleasure. Uh, appreciate your time. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor: follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review, and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.